Welcome to the Blue Security Podcast, a weekly podcast for information security defenders, where we bring you discussions on best practices, tools, and implementation for enterprise security. Now, here are your hosts for today's show, Andy Ja and Adam Brewer. Welcome to another episode of the Blue Security Podcast. I'm Andy, your host. I'm Adam, your co-host. This week, I wanted to talk about a blog article that I stumbled upon by a company called OORT or ORT. I think that's probably how you pronounce it. And to me, it looks like they are a vendor of sort, which might compete with like the cyber arcs of the world. It's an identity governance type product, but they published this blog called the state of identity security in 2023. So of course I love reading about identity. I read through the report and they had some really good takeaways and some actions and it's nothing that's mind blowing, but it's always good to reinforce because we are still getting attacked from an identity standpoint. And I think I heard on one of the podcasts that I listened to that still today, the majority of attacks happen through initial vectors of phishing and then usually a credential compromise after that. So identity is still right there in the initial access. So starting from the top, they had three big takeaways. Their first one is enterprises lack strong MFA adoption. Now we all know that MFA adoption has been on the rise and very little companies that I have come across now do not have at least some sort of MFA for the most part. But this takeaway is they lack strong MFA. So the point is really about the adoption of fish resistant MFA as a second factor. And their surveys in this report show that only 1.82% of all accounts are using this type of MFA, which that sounds about right to me. I don't, mm-hmm. I think most people are not using that type of MFA. Agreed. And then they said that their sample showed 40.26% of accounts have either no MFA or weak MFA. So, you know, that's also probably, and by weak MFA, we probably mean like SMS MFA. Mm-hmm. So about 40% is using that. They also found that users have some extremely long sessions configured without having to re-authenticate. So that does make it easier for attackers to hijack sessions successfully. So when we talk about those session hijacks or the MFA prompt, the MFA bombing, you know, without having to re-authenticate, it makes it easier for attackers to, to get those. They actually found that on average, companies have a lot of monthly sessions. And this was an analysis did from Okta, where they looked at companies who were Okta customers, but several of those customers had monthly sessions that were uh, longer than seven days. The recommended session length is one working day. And to me, that says eight hours. So usually you authenticate once, that session should last eight hours, and then you'd have to be prompted again. So that was the first takeaway, which was all about strong MFA adoption. The MFA numbers sound right aligned with what we see. Still very little fish resistant MFA being used out there. Would love to see more of it. Understand some of the headwinds with adopting it. So it sounds right. 40.26% either having no MFA or very weak MFA. I mean, so if you kind of do the math here, there's a big chunk now, we're not patting everyone on the back for this, but about 58% that must be like moderate MFA. (laughs) 
since it's like 2% are strong, but gosh, that's still a big number. And and we know this. I mean, like the horse is super dead guys just turn on MFA for everyone all the time, but sounds right. So the session length one is interesting though, because this runs counter to Microsoft guidance. Microsoft guidance in general is that you should not specifically enforce a session length. In the Microsoft world, when you sign in, you get two tokens. You get an access token, which is valid for one hour, and you get a refresh token, which can have a much longer validity time, especially if you've performed strong authentication, like with multi-factor authentication. And that access token is actually the bearer token. It's the thing you can steal and hijack a session. It is good for at most one hour. With continuous access evaluation, that window can be much shorter today. But let's just say worst case scenario, it's one hour. After an hour, because you don't possess the refresh token, you can't exchange that anyway. And the refresh token doesn't get you in. It doesn't get you anywhere. You have to exchange that for an access token to maintain access. So this guidance doesn't really add up, at least not in a Microsoft world, because changing that doesn't change the fact that the thing attackers steal to hijack a session is good for at most one hour. So maybe this applies to other identity providers, but for our listeners who run Azure Active Directory as their IDP, session length should not be reduced unless you have another reason to do it. Perhaps it's a regulatory requirement or an audit requirement, or you just want to do it for an application you deem to be extra sensitive. So to be fair, although overall Microsoft does not recommend it, sometimes it's do as we say, not as we do. I can say for our internal world, our benefits site of all things constantly requires re-authentication. I think it times you out every hour or two, but it is highly sensitive and you can change really sensitive things like your direct deposit information. So that all makes sense. But um, in general, just wanted to point out that that's one of those things. And, and you know, on this show, so much much of security guidance, like we know what we're supposed to do, and there's broad industry agreement as to the right approach. This one is interesting to me that there actually is disagreement on the correct approach on this one. So just wanted to bring that out for conversational purposes, of course, um, that that guidance is different. So if you actually want to see this for yourself, if you go to the documentation for the session length setting in Azure AD, it actually says in the documentation that setting this to a lower interval does not meaningfully improve security. It's actually in the documentation. So for what it's worth. Yeah, I think one of the things that we have an advantage for is that we have the ability when you're within the Microsoft ecosystem to perform other signals that can demonstrate strong authentication Mm -hmm. that can then refresh that session. Mm -hmm. Whereas IDPs that aren't Azure, Mm -hmm. the only way they have to perform another authentication signal is another prompt for MFA. That's all they have. There is nothing else. They can't mix in device compliance signals. They can't mix in Windows Hello for Business, which does count as another MFA prompt. So if I sign in to my Windows device with Windows Hello for Business, that sends a signal to Azure Active Directory to say you've performed MFA on this device Mm -hmm. without ever having prompted me on the authenticator. Right. So that's the advantage. And so that's why I think the guidance has been eight hours for other IDPs, because if they didn't do that, they would constantly be prompted for MFA, just like our benefits site. Mm -hmm. Every time we sign in an hour or whatever, Mm -hmm. we get prompted for MFA. And I got to go grab my phone. I got to do the prompt. (laughs) And that's the only time throughout the day, for the most part, I have to grab my phone for an MFA. Right. But I am constantly performing MFA on my Windows machine because I sign in with Windows Hello for Business. Every time you unlock it, you've just performed another MFA. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I think you're probably correct in the fact that if you're in the Microsoft ecosystem, 
the guidance is not to shorten that just to keep it at the default length and for other idps you either have the i'm going to bother my user a lot throughout the day or i'm going to bother them once in the beginning of the day and then you know the next day so it's just once a day which is reasonable right that's still not a bad uh, user experience and i don't think it primes your users to like respond affirmatively to mfa bombing or stuff like that and that's really where the concern comes from is you get these very overzealous security teams who are like we should prompt users to reauthenticate every half hour and it's like a they do that every time they unlock their windows pc but b now you're priming them to just start spamming accept and now you've just really as opposed to improve security you've actually diminished it because of an anti-pattern where you've trained your users to respond affirmatively to mfa bombing or mfa spamming type attacks the second takeaway that they found in this report is dormant accounts are in the crosshairs and we did talk about this recently as well on one of our episodes but they found that dormant accounts represent on average 24 percent of a company's total accounts and they are regularly targeted and they have actual examples because this is not hypothetical so apt 29 which i'm not exactly sure what the actual name of that is but in august of 2022 they launched a brute force attack on some dormant accounts and according to mandiant they conducted a password guessing attack against a list of mailboxes and successfully guessed the password to an account that had never been set up or used and so the group knew that these were inactive dormant accounts and usually they don't have the same security scrutiny as active accounts and then they were able to enroll that compromised account into their own mfa and so if you are keeping dormant accounts around for sure remove them from any security groups they found that inactive users are usually dominated within many groups on average companies have 196 groups with over 75 percent inactive users and that is just a staggering number to me so one if you happen to be keeping them around remove them but i think we had a compliance or some sort of episode where we talked about it like if the users aren't employees anymore you should just remove the accounts unless there's some sort of compliance that i'm not aware of regulatory compliance uh, audit that requires you to keep them for a certain amount of time mm-hmm. so the most interesting line here that caught my attention was furthermore they could enroll any compromised account with their own mfa i have often pointed out because i had customers want to like really harden when you could enroll something to mfa and i, I kind of said why are you doing that i said ultimately if i'm a user and somebody else hijacks my account and enrolls it in mfa i just got a great signal that my account is compromised why why would you want to hide that signal that's like a canary in a coal mine don't lock that down i mean that's a great way to tell but of course if that account is completely inactive and no one else is signing into it well hell why not go ahead, register your own MFA. Nobody's going to notice. And the other thing too is if you do need to keep inactive accounts around for any reason, you should of course not only obviously disable them and all this and that, you should change the password and you should set it to like a super long, complex, randomly generated password. Mash the keyboard for all I care, you know? But there's no reason those should have any reasonably guessable or typable password like ever if you have some reason you warehouse disabled accounts, which again, ideally just don't do that. But if you have to, regulatory compliance or whatever. That's the way we've always done it, which is a bad security reason. But anyhow, change the password. 
and a lot of this goes away. But gosh, those are staggering numbers too. And I believe it. Again, it's just one of those cleanup things that falls through the cracks and it's not really hurting anybody and it's not the squeaky wheel. So why would you go fix it? One of the reasons why I love doing this podcast is because there are certain things that I learn from you and you learn from me Mm -hmm. and I'm sure our listeners learn things as they listen to us talk about it. Out of all the times I've ever talked about this, never once have I ever thought about changing the password to an inactive user. Like, I've done this action where I've moved inactive users to a, another OU, disabled them, removed them from security groups. I've never thought about changing the password. That's such a great tip. And I don't know why I never thought about <laughs> it. But yeah, such a good call out. Literally just mash the keyboard and it's fine. Like it just should be a password nobody knows. And no one no one needs to know. You don't need to keep track of it. You can mm-hmm. just generate a random string and just change the password because it's just there, right? You, you're just keeping it there for the object or whatever. Right. If you're going to re-enable it, obviously you're going to reset the password anyway. So it doesn't matter. So yeah, it should be a password nobody knows. Such a great tip. Thank you. I don't know where I got it. I'm not going to say I came up with it, but obviously I worked with somebody smart who told me to do that and I passed along. Information sharing, baby. Great, great tip. So the third one that we're going to talk about is their final takeaway is admins and executives are under attack. This is not anything new. This is not earth shattering. We know that domain administrators are more likely to face account probing or account compromise. They're going to try to get the keys to the kingdom. But in some instances, so user domain admin accounts usually are fine, right? It's those service accounts that some vendor comes in and like, oh, I need a service account. It has to have domain administrator rights. Those are the ones that usually sometimes get set up with less scrutiny or they're lacking some sort of security control. I know that initially Okta used to require a global administrator within Azure. And of course, you're not going to scope MFA for that global admin account because that can cause problems when it's prompting for the service. They recently changed the, um, I don't know what recent, but they did change it to where it could use a service principle, but it still needed global administrative rights. And so those are the ones that I'm more worried about when you're looking at these, not necessarily the admins, which I think usually are shored up much better. And then of course, executives. Executives are infamously, you know, they don't want to be bothered with the security stuff. Although like we talked about last week where, you know, the CISOs and the C-suite and the board members are now under much more scrutiny. Maybe, you know, the executives are going to be much more open to having security controls, especially when you explain to them the risk. And I know that in my experience, the ones in IT have been much more open to security. It's usually the ones outside of IT. I think lawyers are infamously like, don't bother me with the security. They are getting better, especially the ones that are involved with risk. But yeah, the executives, right? They usually have more leeway usually have to flex a little bit more, but because they're they're more likely to get attacked, these are the ones that actually need the security controls more. The administrators, I also think back to several weeks ago when we were covering the updates from LastPass and all the very targeted attack on one of their administrators that had occurred actually infiltrating their home network and whatnot. We might not see that level, but again, administrators do need to be aware they're very attractive targets and they need to secure their accounts appropriately. And I agree with you, it's probably more likely to be those service style accounts, but I still am sure, especially in smaller organizations, you have almost that single threaded admin who does everything. And who knows if they're running like scheduled tasks with their user identity or something crazy like that. There's probably all sorts of examples where it's like, well, I can't put MFA on my account because then this doesn't work. And ultimately there should be very few instances of that today, but I bet they exist. Executives, absolutely. Absolutely. 
I saw this. I will say now I just had my sixth anniversary at Microsoft. So I'm a bit out of the loop from kind of the world of enterprise IT, but obviously there's been a lot of high profile information security incidents since really I left enterprise IT. I'd be curious to know if executives have kind of at least started to adopt a little more of this and be a little more open to it. And especially as we've gotten better, lower friction options as well, compared to what we had in the past that were pretty friction filled. If we're all being honest with ourselves, the state of the art in current login technology has improved significantly. So maybe that reduces some of the pushback as well. I have to imagine it's better than it was six years ago, but I'm sure it's not where we want to be because there again is the fair perception that my time is incredibly valuable, which it is. And so anything that is really creating friction between me and getting work done is not acceptable. I understand there's risk involved with that, but I don't care. And there's that kind of individuality versus being part of the team kind of thing. And executives tend to sometimes think that what's good for the rest of the company doesn't necessarily apply to them. And I'm painting with a broad brush on that. And I realize that, and they're not always the case, but there are some for sure. And so I think that's, again, a challenge we'll continue to deal with. Yeah, definitely. So just to kind of go over the action items in case, you know, you didn't pick up on it while we were talking through it. Mm -hmm. This is the summary of the blog and and kind of the findings. But number one, shore up your MFA. So start deploying fish resistant MFA, maybe for those priority accounts, maybe for the admin accounts, executives, MFA all the time for sure, but also utilize single sign-on and other factors like Windows Hello for Business or compliant device. If you are within that Microsoft ecosystem, yeah, you can use those signals and not shorten up that session time like we talked about. Mm-hmm. Tidy up your identity, like remove inactive users from groups, delete users who are no longer with the company. You know, if you have to keep them around, great tip from Adam, reset the password. And then of course, monitor those priority accounts like executives and admins. So if you are within the Microsoft ecosystem in exchange, like for Defender for Office and Defender for Identity, you can mark certain mailboxes or accounts as priority. And then that will show up with a separate tag when they get alerted to if there's something happening to it. And I'm sure that the other type of EDR solutions and secure email gateways have a way to also mark them, but kind of go through and figure out what your priority, you should at least have an inventory. That's kind of like the basics of like security, like have an inventory, like know what you need to monitor. So know your priority accounts, know your priority mailboxes. And then if you have a tool that allows you to tag them, like Defender for Office or Defender for Identity, then you can get a specific alert when that priority account has something malicious happening to it. I think that's a great summary. This was a cool blog post. So go check it out at Ort's website. And then, you know, if you have any tips or tricks you want to share with us, you know, we'd love to pass them along in a future show. That's our show for this week. Thanks for watching and listening as always. Our contact information will be in the show notes if you have any questions or topics you want us to talk about in the future. Thanks. We'll talk to you guys next week. Thank you for listening to the Blue Security Podcast. Please check out the show notes, catch up on episodes you may have missed, and subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Find Andy on Twitter at AJAWZERO and Adam at AJ Brewer. See you at our next episode.